Hi, this is Rachel Collins, Principal Research Lead for Financial Management at APQC. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to APQC Podcasts on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast is part of a series on internal controls, where we wanted to answer some of the many recent and important questions that we've received on this key topic. I'm pleased to be joined by Chris Doxey, an author, speaker, and management consultant who is passionate about improving financial processes. Chris has extensive experience with transforming financial operations, implementing self-audit tools, and automating internal controls. In this conversation, we'll lay the groundwork and talk about the structure of internal controls programs. So without further ado, here's the chat. All right, well, today we are talking about the structure of internal controls programs with our subject matter expert, Chris Doxey, for our new internal controls study. So, Chris, the first question I have for you when we talk about the structure of internal controls programs is what are internal controls? Can you define those for us? Yeah, absolutely. Internal controls are defined traditionally by a detective approach. So if you're, if you look at something after the fact, you know, so you're detecting through doing analytics and reviewing data that there could be an erroneous uh, payment to a supplier or an employee even. So those are, those are good controls, you know, to the extent, but they're a little bit late, you know, because you've already uh, issued a payment to the wrong person or, uh, the same person twice or whatever, but I, the ones that I think are, are really the, the best practice controls are preventing a bad thing from happening. And, you know, really, if we define the purpose of internal controls, we want to mitigate risk. We want to prevent uh, fraud. We want to prevent some of the errors, process errors. And, you know, really sometimes fraud and process errors are, are very closely aligned. So internal controls are, are really preventing um, something uh, bad within a company from occurring. And that's really the simple way of, of explaining it. So again, the, the, it's really the two um, major controls are preventing something, um, you know, which is preventing a thief from breaking into your house with locks on your doors and alarms and everything else. Um, and again, in business, that's hard to implement because we always look at things after the fact. And you can prevent maybe those payment issues that I was talking about um, by sending an alert. And of course, now we're so automated, you could get an alert on your phone and say, oops, we're going to overpay a vendor or a supplier. Let's, let's you know, stop that payment. Um, and then if we're detecting, we're looking after the fact. And, you know, again, we should really do both. Even though we're trying to prevent something, we, wanted, we want to look at that uh, you know, again, that detecting to see if we actually, it actually worked. And I think detective controls go into that self-assessment process. And the last one I'll just mention briefly, and there's corrective and there's all kinds of different types of controls, but the other three, uh, or the third major category is compensating. So if we have segregation of duties issues or system access issues, um, we want to make sure that we have a system set up and access set up where the same person in accounts payable can't set up a supplier and pay that supplier and then cover their tracks with a journal entry. And 
if we can't do that, well, because of, you know, uh, resources or uh, different challenges we have in, in today's um, uh, organization, then what we want to do is have a compensating control where there are checks and balances that uh, indicate if there is a problem. So that would mean additional reviews. It's a little bit more work, but it's important to take a look at, okay, if we can't totally have uh, access separated, let's make sure somebody's reviewing that access to make sure what I call financial shenanigans don't occur. Thanks, Chris. That's a great explanation of what are internal controls. How do you see organizations typically structure their internal controls programs in terms of roles, in terms of accountabilities, and in terms of responsibilities? Yeah, that, that's, that's a great question. I, I think that we can talk about some best practices to maybe give you an idea on how a good structure actually works. And then I can tell you what is probably not a best practice. But basically, we look at um, the structure of internal controls being in the hands of the business operation. So what that means is that uh, the function or the operation like accounts payable or accounts receivable have responsibility for their own controls. And that's really um, over seen by an internal controls organization, which is separate from internal audit. So that internal controls organization is making sure that those business process owners are identifying the internal controls and might be even doing their own testing from a self-assessment perspective. And that works really well because if the operational person like accounts receivable or accounts payable, as mentioned, finds something that needs to be improved, they can go ahead and, and run a test or uh, write a new control. But they go in hand in hand and in partnership with that internal controls group. And this structure was in place at um, MCI, which was um, part of uh, the, the WorldCom, uh, you know, get well plan. Basically, what we wanted to do is, is build internal controls into the organization, but having a separate oversight with an internal controls organization. Then what internal audit would do to maintain their independence is review those results. And it really helped out audit quite a bit because they didn't have to have that overall responsibility for internal controls. They could look at the testing and the internal control programs that were done by business process owners in partnership with that internal controls group I was telling you about. And, you know, that's kind of a best practice. And I actually saw that at one of my uh, prior companies, uh, Digital Equipment Corporation, which was uh, merged under Compaq, they had a control self-assessment program where business process owners had to do a quarterly assessment and they called that balance sheet review. So it was taking it up a notch. It wasn't just looking at internal controls, but actually looking at account reconciliation, any business process changes and that sort of thing. So, you know, again, to my original point, having that best practice where internal controls is a responsibility of the business process owner with that oversight. And, you know, we talked about, well, what's a, a worst practice or what's not a best practice. And that's where the internal controls responsibility is under the 
the total realm or the total ownership of internal audit. Well, you know, again, that's not embedding controls into the operation. That's almost saying, well, it's internal audit's responsibility. I don't have to worry about it. So hopefully that answers that, that question because it's, it's a very interesting dilemma. And it starts, I think, with the philosophy of the CEO and CFO and how deep in, they want to bring internal controls into the organization. Now, Sarbanes-Oxley actually helps reinforce that. But for companies that aren't uh, public companies, they even don't have a controls program. As I said, it's usually uh, kind of thrown over the wall, if you will, to internal audit. All right, great. Thanks so much. Let's talk about shared services for a moment. In your experience, when do you see organizations considering shared services for internal controls? And which internal controls type processes or activities do you find typically should fall within the shared services or be, be managed and governed by the shared services center as compared to being managed by the business units? Yeah, and, and again, that, that kind of fits in with um, the previous question. Now, shared services is kind of combining business transactions, you know, like payables, like like procurement, payroll, maybe a little bit of accounts receivable. So with that said, they should have their own internal controls that, that they worry about. Now, a shared service center, uh, particularly one that's offshore or outsourced, should have an overarching governance of internal controls. However, the corporation um, needs to have that overall oversight, which, again, might be that internal controls group. And that group um, reports usually I didn't mention in my previous explanation, but that group usually reports right to the controller or the chief accounting officer, depending upon how the company's structured and how many, um, I like to say, fiefdoms there are, such as uh, uh, business units, uh, product lines, uh, geographies, um, how integrated they are, if they've just gone through a merger and acquisition activity. But I think having a common structure for uh, internal controls it is really the best way to go because you're making sure that their testing is consistent across the, the company. And, you know, typically that shared service organization at the top of the company could in fact be that internal controls group that I mentioned earlier. And they may say, all right, we have to make sure we look at payables this quarter. We look at payroll next quarter. And again, it's, it's all about a partnership and it's having that thread of controls and a thread of having best uh, practices embedded throughout the company. And, you know, again, uh, another example I'll give you, I have uh, quite a few of them, as, as you can imagine. Um, going back to my days at digital, we had, you know, again, that balance sheet review model. So the, the um, corporate level uh, internal controls group would make sure that certain organizations were looked at at a quarterly basis. And, you know, again, it got really difficult when you're looking at it on a global basis. So they started to say, all right, controller of a subsidiary, you look, you look at your controls for France, but you report the results back to us. And how that all worked, if we look at maybe an inventory model and a logistics organization, um, 
we could spend a lot of time doing physical inventories, um, you know, pretty much every quarter, which gets very cumbersome in a manufacturing company. And what we did was we set up a, a self-assessment where PI results, um, physical inventory results, along with cycle counting could be, could be reported and analyzed to determine, all right, do we need to go do a physical inventory at this particular site? So it was a lot of, a lot of learning. And, you know, I go back to the days when we first started the balance sheet review process that I'm talking about. And um, it was to the point where we needed to validate, okay, does the uh, employee uh, stock purchase group understand how the accounting works. And I remember watching, uh, walking in on a, on a session and they were doing T accounts on, on the board. And a lot of it was, um, okay, let's make sure that the business process owners, number one, understand what they're responsible for and understand what controls need to be, placed beyond, be in place beyond reconciliation. But there needs to be that oversight that, that I'm stressing and that we're talking about. And that could be at the shared service level, you know, rolling up to the corporate level. So it depends on the hierarchy, really. That makes a lot of sense. And I guess we would conclude the podcast today by asking, again, based on your extensive experience, if you have any other advice or lessons learned related to uh, how you've seen leading organizations structure their internal controls programs, again, in terms of those roles or accountabilities or responsibilities. Yeah, and that, that's a, a great way to kind of wrap things up. And, you know, we talked about structure and we talked about, you know, a couple of examples. And I, I think it starts, you know, again, with, with the philosophy and the level and the attention uh, to internal controls, which really is beginning with tone at the top and ethics and training and continuous monitoring. And, and you know, again, in prior roles that I've had, we needed to kind of get everybody on the same page, not only at companies like MCI, which was previously WorldCom, but with anyone that was stepping into some sort of an internal controls responsibility, we needed to establish a training program. And it wasn't, you know, from a, you know, from a pure audit perspective and, you know, again, just jumping right in with the COSO framework, but looking at it from a practical perspective and that's why I, I love internal controls so much because it's very practical. And if you own a, a business process, you should right be thinking about, all right, what could go wrong with my process? And uh, should I have standards of internal control in place? And that would be another best practice that I'll mention is having a level of standards of internal control for each business process and using that kind of as a, a baseline to keep enhancing the internal controls, starting with a business process and then through that whole roll-up. So if you're doing that kind of approach, you don't even have to worry about some massive testing at the end of the year required by Sarbanes-Oxley because you know what? You've already embedded it into your process. Great. Thank you so much, Chris, for your insights on this important topic. Okay. Thank you. This is Rachel Collins. Thanks for joining us for this APQC podcast. We encourage you to check out Chris Doxey's books, the new accounts payable toolkit, the controllers toolkit, the internal controls toolkit, and the fast close toolkit. For more insights, please visit apqc.org to see our new research collection on new developments in internal controls. Thanks again and have a great rest of your day.